Neurodiversity can be a challenging diagnosis, whether you are neurodivergent, neurotypical, or just looking to understand someone who has a diagnosis. My name is Juana Venegas, and this podcast was created to be a resource for you. We will provide tools and engaging conversations to help navigate the journey from the diagnosis to hope and create community along the way. Because by creating community, we are helping today's current kids, young adults, and also building a more inclusive world for future generations. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for staying tuned with us again. Um, I have a special guest. Her name is Dr. Freeman, Dr. Candace Freeman. You call me Candace. <laughs> <laughs> so how we met, it was so organically that I'm amazed. Um, so my son took some ISR classes because, classes, I, uh-huh, yeah. because I was afraid that he wouldn't uh, swim. So that actually, she she's actually a teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a teacher. Jennifer Richardson. Yeah, so she's a teacher. And then I said to her, hey, do you know I'm an advocate? And she was like you know what? I do. <laughs> and she sent me to you. And like, this is the first time that we see each other yes, in person. Yes, we like, talked a lot. Yeah. It's very like nice to actually yeah. see you in, in the flesh. I know. Um, Jennifer worked with my son too, which, and I hadn't seen her in a while because I, same thing. I was worried and I wanted to make sure he could save himself if he needed to. Yeah. And he loves swimming. In fact, he just finished a, uh, his first swim team swim lesson as I'm sitting here. Yes. Oh, five wow. years later. Yay. So, so yay, Jennifer. Great job. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're going to talk over here about neurodiversity and what's going on with our education. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's start like, who are you? Who am I? Um, so my name, you said Dr. Candace Friedman. Candace Friedman. I am a now a professional advocate and private tutor, but once upon a time, I was a classroom teacher in the autism clusters in um, Broward County, Um, and I was a public school teacher who just wanted to work with the neurodivergent population, and I very quickly saw what was going on in the classroom, Um, the lack of support, the way admin would treat me treat my kids and how when I just wanted to do what I was supposed to do as a teacher advocate for them look at their strengths look at their weaknesses and at the end of the day the goal was if my student could survive in the least restrictive environment I didn't want them in a self-contained room and I was in an IEP meeting with a little boy who had no business being in my classroom could still see his face and mom didn't speak English very well it was in a low-income area and they also didn't have the translator they were supposed to have so mom didn't completely understand what's going on and I said well I I do think it's time to start integrating um and have I don't want to say his name but this little boy leave my classroom come back as need be but we should really start getting out of here I thought great everyone agreed signed all the paperwork I was thrilled I walk out of that IEP room, out of that meeting room, and the principal pulls me aside. And she goes, you are meddling where you shouldn't be meddling. Do that again, and you're fired. I said, oh, cool, cool. I was 25. I had been teaching for three years. I had just gotten married, and I was at a point in my life where I could still take risks. You know, bills weren't very big, no kids. I looked at her, and, you know, Admittedly, I would have paused. I would have taken pause now. But I looked and said, okay. Took my keys and badge or on my neck off. Handed it to her said, I quit. And the way Broward County works, they, ever since like 2008 or 2009, you're on year-to-year contract there. Mm-hmm. You're not stuck. I quit. I was on a year contract. What did that mean? I could not get rehired by Broward for a year. Didn't mean that I couldn't come in as the advocate. I had that parent's number. I took nothing with me from the classroom, but I had that parent's number. I called her and I said, 
when you need me, you call me. I'm now an advocate. I will no longer be his teacher, but I'm still here if you need me. I still talk to that mom. Um, and that's pretty much my background. I have a master's and a PhD in education, master's in special education, PhD in educational leadership. Um, and I really, at that moment, it was a risk, but I wasn't there for money. As a teacher, I wasn't there for money. I was just trying to do what was right. And, you know, like I said, maybe now I would have taken pause, but I would have done the same thing. Because mm-hmm. it was the right thing to do, and it, it's, it's always steered me correct. And almost a decade later, here we are. Um, interestingly enough, this past week, I had an IEP meeting in that same school with that same principal. And whenever she sees my name float across, because a lot of times principals are at an IEP meetings, but if my name floats across her desk, mm-hmm. she's told she's there. And she will not make eye contact with me still. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So um, tell me about your passion. What do you see in, neuro, in neurodiverse kids? What, why neurodiversity? So it started, mostly it started because I was a kid who, you know, I, I, neurodiverse my own way. I'm, I'm not on the spectrum. I was considered the gifted kid. I was the band geek. I was the one that my always hung out with the kids that, you know, weren't the shiny, pretty people, right? Um, they were always more interesting to me. My brother is brilliant but eccentric, and I wound up marrying a man who's on the spectrum. Um, he is, would now be considered um, uh, level one, but up until recently it was Asperger's. Right. Um, and he's just fascinating. I mean, he's really, truly just fascinating and from the way he sees the world to the way he speaks about things to just everything and as I fell more in love with my husband I also was interested um you know my bachelor's is in accounting and I have an MBA in business a master's in business administration and international business yeah been busy girl yeah (laughs) so I didn't intend on teaching I always Uh liked teaching my mom as a teacher but I It wasn't necessarily the way my career path was going, Um, like most things in life. The journey is not linear, Mm -hmm. but it was the right way for me. Um, And I found myself while finding my career, which is not always the case. Uh, Most people's passions and their career do not intersect that way. Um, But, you know, as I wanted to really selfishly learn more about my husband, I learned more about the neurodiverse community and realized how much not only was I a member of it and so many of the people I love, um, you know, growing up in the 90s, it wasn't as spoken about. Um, I mean, when I was in high school, I was in what was known as the Best Buddies program, but I look at it now and it's a travesty of how it was done. because All of these kids were just put away and you could be in a high school, middle school, not know they existed unless you were really looking for them, which is disgusting. But it was the 90s. No excuses, but it changed. It's still changing. Um, and then as I fell more into my groove my in my career, I fell more into this was my niche. This is where I wanted to be. This was the population I wanted to work with. Your gifted kids, even if they are sitting on the spectrum someplace, if they're highly gifted, they're going to find their way your middle of the road, your neurotypical, they're going to find your way. But your neurodivergent, even if they are very brilliant, but they have behaviors that might impede, they will get lost. They will get, they will fall between the cracks. And I don't know, something about the underdog, something about the fact that I knew I could help them, something about the fact that as I grew into the position, when I first started, I was really young. So the parents would look at me and go, like, you're, you're, you're really young. I'm like, I know, but I know a lot. Just trust me. Now as I'm falling into life, I don't get that look so much. It's that it's, I trust you. What do you think? Um, and I just love that I'm able to help. So I guess, I guess in a nutshell, the passion is helping. But for neurodiversity, it's just, it's interesting. It's mm-hmm. different. 
You see one kid with autism. You see one. They're all different. But when you get to see maybe a little bit of something that you notice the trend, you notice the markers, it also allows for me to go, okay, I'm seeing this. Maybe this is the route I'll go to help this child. So, yeah, I mean, it's really just, it's fun. It's great. And it's not always easy. Mm -hmm. We know it's not easy. Um, and that's the moments where you remember why you're doing what you're doing because it's going to test you. Everything is. And now as a mom, um, you know, I keep an eye on my son. I Early intervention, I've he's five years old. Mm -hmm. I have had him in OT. I have had him in PT. <laughs> I have had him in speech because he does have a father who's on the spectrum. I, I know that I'm neurodivergent in my own ways. And I... I know from my toolbox, I know how to help him. do and help. And yeah. I'm sure there's going to be plenty of things I don't know. But I'm figuring out as I go. Yeah. <laughs> so um, neurodiversity is a big umbrella, right? So we cover um, autism. Well, the most known ones are autism, ADHD, ADD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, um depression bipolar and you name right. it there's so many I, i i i jokingly and just call it the alphabet soup because <laughs> <laughs> it's it is there's a yeah. lot and there's always more because we're learning more about the brain right so um with that how um i'm going to ask you a question that we talked before yeah, yeah. so how do you uh help a neurodiverse child or how do you teach a neurodiverse child every situation is different like i said you see one kid with autism you've seen one you see one with adhd you've seen one though that's a little more linear but adhd can show its face in many different ways you have to figure out the child and in some cases the adult you have to talk to them you have to see what's going to work Unfortunately for some kids, it's bribing, it's rewards. So we figure out a reward system. And some, it is a consequence. In some, it's okay, I know you know how to do this math, but you're sitting here and you're not doing it. But all of a sudden, they're walking around, they're pacing the room, and they're spewing the facts. Okay, you got it, you got it, you need the kinesthetic, you need to move. So, There is not a one-size-fits-all one approach, and that's part of our issue in education right now. Um, to give you some history, and if I, I don't mean to talk at you. No, I just, no, no, no. I, I'm a teacher, so this is yeah. what I do. Our education structure, as it stands, was originally created during the Industrial Revolution. Why? Because we wanted to create worker bees. We wanted people, you know, uh, Henry Ford and the assembly line, we wanted people to be able to get up, go to their job, work in unison, and make the big man money. Well, you, you can't just do that. You got to teach somebody. And you got to keep people on a clock. They have to get up. They have to know their routine. They have to go to their job. They have to do their thing. They have to know when they leave. That's what school is. School is a mini job. It runs those same business hours. Our education structure was meant to make worker bees. So if you couldn't fall in line, literally, on the assembly line, what good were you? So our education structure has now made it that it's seemingly the point of going to elementary, middle, and high school is to then go to college. Even though college should not be the ultimate goal. And it's not, it shouldn't be the goal for everybody, but now everyone's going to college. And that, you know, we're missing people who are very vital to our society. Um, so we have this one-size-fits-all approach to education, and it's not working. Yes, it's going to work for some. There will always be those people, even if they don't like it, that can go to school, memorize their multiplication, do their, their English work, turn their homework in on time, and leave. There will be a few that are passionate about it because they just love that input of information, And then there's going to be a ton that just can't learn that way. And over the years, we've seen it labeled as bad behavior. Um, we've seen it labeled as lazy, a poor student, when really it's just that's not how they learn. So we've, we've 
over-medicated. We've had it labeled as, we've had so many, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, we've had so many kids labeled as ADD and ADHD, and they just had medications pouring down their throat to make them calm down so they could sit down and do their work. But if they had just been allowed to stand up and do their work at the same desk, they might have been able to do it. So it, it it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and you really have to get to know the student. And that could even be a five-minute conversation. Hey, what do you like? What don't you like? What makes you uncomfortable? What makes you happy? When do you feel you work best? And, of course, there are students that can't answer those questions, especially the little ones. Or they're nonverbal. Or they're nonverbal. Or they just don't know um, what that even means. Because we're grown adults, and could you answer those questions? No. Right. <laughs> so it takes a lot of observation, which brings us to teachers are wonderful. Teachers need support. We don't, they don't have that support. I didn't have that support from my own admin, and I'm not the only one. I have a lot of friends who are teachers. They'll tell me the same thing. They'll tell me about things going on in their classroom, and I'll go, should you have done that, or could you have approached it? This should, and they'll go, yes, I know, but I have 24, 25, 26 other students here, and I have. there's no para, there's no help. And when you have big classes, no support, and teachers who are just trying to skate by because they, they're, you know, it's hard. They don't even get that time to figure out what the kid needs. Or by the time that they do, we're already a halfway or three quarters through the year and everyone's frustrated. Parents are frustrated. The child's frustrated. The administration's frustrated. It, it's a perfect storm. And it's, it's what leads to why I get calls. Um, I truly believe, truly believe that every school is trying to do right by the kids. I don't think anybody goes into education because they hate children. Mm -hmm. Um, nobody goes into education for the money or the fame. Like that's not, that's that, (laughs) it's a, it's laughable. Mm -hmm. Um, Teachers go into education because they want to teach. They want to change the world. They want to touch young souls. They want to uplift. And the bureaucracy gets in the way. The money gets in the way. And I don't mean the money that the teachers get paid, although if they got paid a few more bucks, it would they wouldn't be complaining. Our neurodivergent children have a dollar sign on their head. They have a dollar sign on their head. And schools that like have... Inside and outside of the classroom. Right, but I'm yeah. talking about specifically to a... Specifically in the public education system. Okay. We'll talk about private in a second. In the public education system, neurodivergent students have a dollar sign on their head because that's what they're worth to the district because that's how much money the district is given by the state. So we know the McKay Scholarship Gardner. It's now called Step Up for empowerment, it's, it's gone by a lot of names recently. That's not new money. That's your, your property taxes at work. That's the Department of Education. Each student in a school is worth a certain amount of money. Your special education students, your, your neurodivergent students, anyone who's getting services, not 504s, not, dis- not medical disabilities, though there are times where that comes into play too, but I'm talking about services, OT, so occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech. Behavior um, plan. Beha- well, the behavior plan is made in order to get those therapies. Those therapists have to get paid. The state figures out how much those therapists get paid. They take it from their money in the Department of Education that used to be funded by our taxes, which is now funded by the Florida Lottery. Not sure if you knew that. Oh, no. It's almost completely funded by the Florida Lottery right now. I'll explain that one, too. This mm-hmm. rabbit holes. Wow. <laughs> um, and they say, okay, your child has this matrix number. Let's say a matrix number of 20. They need various services. They're worth $17,000. Should you leave the district, 
you can apply for a scholarship that you can use at a private school for $17,000. And there's a catch there too, but we'll get to that. Schools want to have as many of those students, public schools want to have as many of those students as they possibly can in their programs because that means that's money that that school is getting from the state. However, the state is not watching and the district is not watching if all $17,000 goes to that student. Money gets lost. Money winds up in a copy machine, but it's for the special education section of the school. So don't worry. It's for your kid. Obviously not. Mm-hmm. Um, so the schools will take your neurodivergent kids, and it's not every public school. Some of them are fantastic. Um, am I allowed to give a shout-out to a school, or should I not? Yeah, sure. Shout-out to Boca Middle and Boca High. They really, I mean, they really, their programs are second to none. Um they will, they, they take that money, they get those kids, but then they don't always use it for those kids. And they don't always have the resources, the paras, the extra hands on deck to help those kids. Now, remember how I mentioned the scholarships? Mm-hmm. You go, okay, I'm not happy at this school. I'm going to take my money and I'm going to go to this private school. Here's the problem. Not all private schools are going to take it. And then some that do don't actually have the resources and they don't legally need to, and they don't legally need to follow your IEP, and they don't legally need to follow your 504 because they are private. So they'll take your tuition dollars and put it towards your tuition, but don't expect that 504 or that IEP to be followed. And if your child has too high of a matrix number, right, and you're getting a nice chunk of change from the state, I don't know, let's go back to that $17,000 number, the private school might say, well, we can't service you, I'm sorry. You're going, well, he, he really doesn't need that much. On paper, it looks like a lot, but he doesn't really need that much. Well, ma'am, we're looking at this IEP as written, and we can't help you. We can't take your money. We can't take this money from the state. So there seems to be a game of how much money, how high the matrix number can go on the IEP to get the most money of the scholarship without it triggering a red flag, an alarm, that if you want to transfer your kid to a private school, they will still take them. And then those private schools, let's say there's a few There's a few in the area. I'm not going to mention names, but there's a few fairly elite private schools in the area that have academy programs. What do you think they do? They'll take your kid. They'll take your money, the McKay money, the step-up money. But then they charge an extra $15,000 on top of their $30,000 tuition to take your neurodivergent child. You're now spending $45,000, $48,000 a year on second grade. Really? So it's created a storm. Um, and in the end, I really think teachers in public, private, all around, they just want to help. They just want to do their job. They just want to teach and go home to their own families. But a lot of other bureaucratic red tape gets in the way. Um, money gets in the way. Um, needs get in the way. And it's not a problem I have an answer to. Mm-hmm. I just know how to navigate when people come to me. And I say, well... What does your child need? What do you need as a parent for that support? And we go from there. Yeah. And you, uh, what I love about you is that you try with the school, with the, even though if it's public, you really try with the school. Always. You, because Always. you were Thank on you. the other side. Yes. You were on the other I was side. literally on the other side of the table. Yeah. And something that is insane I don't know, as a parent, is the amount of work the teachers have. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. For every IEP, they have to do grabs, and they have to do... They have to collect data. Data. Yep. They have to... And not only that, they have to teach a curriculum, and they have to develop a curriculum. Yes. And a curriculum that is based on the UDL 
um, mm-hmm. did I set her right? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Based on what that child needs and based on the depth of knowledge scale and based on the state standards and based on, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, oh my gosh, like, um, and I know that they made the, they changed the name of the access points right now. It's not FSAAA yeah. right now is. Something with. They the, take the, out the, the A. Fast. They, they keep changing it. Yeah. Keep ch- I, I can't even keep up. I mean, I, honestly, I know it sounds silly, but I know what it is. And even in meetings, uh-huh. they're still recur- referring to it as access point and the FAST and the FSA. They're, they Even in the school, the teachers, the admin, the ESC coordinators, they are still referring to it as the old names because these names change so fast. You know, can't keep up. Yeah. So uh, kudos to the teachers that they wake up every morning what, at 5 uh, yeah, at least at five, five, five get, fifteen, because they they report by seven a.m. and then the kid there if they have families, mm-hmm. the kid is ready. Uh, they have the breakfast. They pack the lunch yes. for them, uh, and then they leave at school at like around four, mm-hmm. like, yeah. and and they still bring homework. Yeah, they still bring homework. Like paper like papers that they have to grade it's you know so this is where covid kind of covid was terrible everything about covid this is where covid made it worse for teachers used to be if you left your papers on your desk okay you can grade them and sometimes teachers would intentionally so that they could have a break without feeling guilty leave the folder on their desk everything's on google classroom now google forms google slides Eight o'clock at night, they're they're maybe just winding down, just got their child to bed, maybe with their significant other. They're getting emails. Why isn't this graded yet? Did you do this yet? Timmy's IEP says this, and you didn't follow this one thing. Why not? Okay. Everyone's entitled to their questions. And the teacher doesn't have to check the email at eight o'clock, right? But then it's, 7.30 a.m. the following day, and the parents already called the school. I emailed the teacher, and they didn't respond, and I don't understand it, and what is going on here? And the teacher, well, I'm just trying to have a life. I I just need five minutes. It's hard. It's hard. And we've also watched a landscape where teachers have lost respect. So my mother is a teacher, and she'll hate me for saying this, but she will be 68 this week. And... (laughs) Love you, Mom. And she has been teaching since 1977. Oh, wow. Okay. So when she became a teacher, she said at that point, and it is what it is, women were two things. Nurses are teachers. If you went to college, if you were going to get a degree, a four-year degree, you were going to become a nurse or a teacher. She became a teacher. And she said, back then, teachers were respected. Once again, you never went into teaching for money. You were never going to be, you know, the most uh, affluent, opulent person in the room. But you're going to be respected. And you say, you're a teacher? Oh, very nice, very nice. Thank you. Right, thank you. She said she's watched in her career that has spanned more than four decades, five decades, from thank you then it turned into, uh, why? Then it turned into, why would you do that? You make no money. I have heard students go, why would I listen to that teacher who makes $30,000 a year? I have heard this. First off, it does not matter what you make. That is not the sign of why you should respect somebody or not. But second, where do you think these kids are learning this? House. Yeah, they're learning this from home. So we have watched a society, a societal change of how we look at teachers. And it has then created how we treat teachers. And you saw it even in the pandemic, in the beginning. These teachers are so great. They're on Zoom. They're helping these kids. And then when there was back-to-school orders, but you had teachers that were like my mother's age, that were in their mid-60s, they're going, I'm really at risk. I'm not so sure I want to go into a classroom with 30 kids who 
may or may not wash their hands regularly. Then they were called lazy. You don't care about the kids. You're lazy. How dare you be so selfish? So these teachers can't win. They can't win. And it is frustrating when you see a teacher who truly isn't doing their job because it exists. But then when you look at the big scope of it, you can't help but blame. Like, you can't blame them. You can't go like, oh, yeah, well. Mm. It's, it's a problem. Yeah. So it is a call out for administrators, for parents, for students, for teachers. It's okay to have a life. Respect your life. Love yourself. And give it to someone else. Yes. Yeah. Even though, like, your teacher, you can They decided that for a passion. Right. <laughs> no, for, because I want to be Dr. XYZ in the Nobel Prize. Right. So thank you for, for letting us um, do that call out to teachers and to everyone. So um, another question is, um, what invitation do you want to give to parents? Don't keep quiet. Um Good and bad. If you see the teacher is doing something phenomenal, tell them. Say thank you. You don't have to give them a gift. They don't need a gift. A hug, a thank you, an eye contact of you're doing great. I see you. I appreciate you. But also, on the other side of the coin, if you see something, you feel something that doesn't feel right, don't sit back. Um, something I hear a lot is parents are afraid to speak up, especially when they have a child who's neurodivergent, because they already know, especially in the least restrictive environment, that maybe their child is a disruptive one in the classroom. Maybe their child is the hardest student that that teacher has to deal with. It's very possible. But that doesn't mean you need to be scared. Um, a lot of parents are afraid to speak up because they feel that there's going to be a negative repercussion. If there's a negative repercussion on your child for speaking up, then that is a very clear indicator to get out and to speak up even louder and to go above the teacher's head, go above the administration's head, which, listen, you've seen the emails. I've had to do that. I've had cases where I've had to go right to the superintendent. But I've also had situations where I've said to the parent, you know, maybe the teacher just isn't aware. Tell them. Talk to the teacher first like a human. Um, we have teachers, Palm Beach County, example, started this school year, the 23-24 school year that just started five weeks ago, shy 500 teachers. Oh, my. So the school year started, and there were 500 teacher vacancies. There are teachers in teaching that are out of field. Doesn't mean they don't want to be in that classroom, but maybe not all of their education is done yet. And... They also need to be told when they're doing right and wrong. Um, so my invitation to parents is to use your voice. Do not be shy. You know your child better than anybody else. And even sometimes the school be like, well, mom, you have to remember this and this. Okay, yeah, you do. But you know your child. So if it doesn't sit right with you, say it. The worst that's going to happen truly is that you might have overreacted and you might feel a little silly. And we all do that. I have a five-year-old, right? He just started kindergarten. I remember I said I've had him in OT and PT and speech. I went to his curriculum night, and I saw his name. They had the little dots for him to trace his name. He knows to write his name. I spent thousands of dollars, <laughs> thousands of dollars on OT to make sure that that little boy can write his name beautifully. And I said to the teacher, hey, why is this here? She goes, oh, he was, he was struggling. I was like, don't let him do that because I also know that my sweet, perfect angel little boy is a manipulator. And if you give him an inch, he'll run 10 miles. Mm -hmm. He will pretend he doesn't know. Like, oh, but I need help. I'm tired. Mm -mm. I need a break. I need a break. So he's like, don't let him do that. He will manipulate you. Okay. Two days later, he's getting out of the car at Carline. And I see the, a teacher, you know, and he was struggling to put his backpack on. And he just said, I can't do it. And I saw the teacher put his backpack on. Once again, spent thousands of dollars on OT. He knows how to put his backpack on. And I sent the teacher a message saying, I am becoming increasingly 
um, what did I say, in- rapidly upset at the amount of coddling and he can't manipulate you and da 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 da. And she was really sweet about it. And then I came back like two hours later. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm a new kindergarten mom who works in the field and I know my kid and I just don't want him to take advantage of you. And you know, I felt, I was like, I feel crazy right now. She goes, no, you're fine. I, I get it. It's fine. I spoke up. Did I feel a little silly that maybe I was overreacting? Yeah. But was it both a learning moment for me and for the teacher? It was. And there was no harm done. I didn't insult the teacher. I didn't. I said, this is my kid. This is what he will do. So even from a personal point, I invite parents to speak up. Because sometimes your teacher doesn't know either. And your kid acts different. And as for teachers, I invite them to also speak up. Teachers are scared too. Speak up to who? Everyone. I'm good. I'll explain. Okay. So I invite teachers to speak up to administration because they're scared of their admin. Because, you know, when you're in the microcosm of a school, your principal is your CEO. They're the one who hire and fire. They're the one that's in charge of the staff. You don't want to upset the principal. But that doesn't mean the CEO is always right. It doesn't mean the principal is always right. I invite the teachers to speak up. I invite the teachers to reach out to parents. And not in a, hi, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, little Johnny exhibited X, Y, and Z behavior today. Please advise. I invite teachers to speak to the parents like humans. If they don't want to call them by their first name, I understand that too. But, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, little Johnny, I love him, but I need your help. Can you, can you enlighten me a little bit? Because I'm seeing this and this, and I don't know if it's just a school behavior or if you're seeing it at home, or maybe it's something I'm doing. Um, I also invite teachers to be in touch with your teachers' unions. One of the things about being a special education teacher that the general public doesn't know, even your gen ed teachers don't know, when you're in a cluster room, a self-contained room, you have to hold extra insurance that you have to pay out of pocket for. If you are a gen ed teacher and a kid falls in your room and gets hurt and the parents are upset and they want to sue the school, they'll sue the school, they'll school, sue the school district, whatever will happen would happen. When you're a special education teacher, parents can sue you directly, personally. And then you wonder why so many um, special ed teachers, ESE teachers, leave the field. Um, you said that before that it takes like about five years that they yeah burnout. burnout. It's about a five year burnout rate from start to end. So you could get you know a young whippersnapper teacher, twenty one, twenty two, like I was, and they're out by twenty five into their next career. You we need those teachers. We need those veterans, and we're losing them rapidly. Um, the other thing is I invite teachers to be cautious with their words, but to try and help parents. And why do I say cautious with their words? In Florida, if you're a teacher, you know, remember some kids, the first time they're ever going to school is kindergarten. They never went to preschool. Kindergarten's the first time they're away from home, which is five years old. They've never had that setting. They might not know right from wrong. They might not know how to sit at circle time, whatever you have it. If a teacher brings up to a parent, you know, I'm noticing that little Johnny is doing X, Y, and Z. You might want to talk to your pediatrician about spectrum, autism spectrum disorders. The teacher can be sued personally just for doing their job of data collection. So I invite teachers to use their words carefully, document everything. But if you see something, say something. And not in a, I think your kid has autism. But, hey, I'm noticing X, Y, and Z. Can you go talk to your pediatrician about X, Y, and Z? Let the pediatrician put the pieces together. But tell the parent, because the parent might, might be a first-time parent with no nieces or nephews around and might have no idea that what their child is doing is not typical. typical. 
is or is not developmentally appropriate. So yeah, yeah. So the expert is the teacher, but she cannot say the diagnosis. Oftentimes, yes. Okay, but um, I remember when Manu was a kid, and um, I received that the diagnosis like. Like the teacher told me, I'm a, I'm a, I'm seeing these ex. Was it preschool? Um, it was in preschool. Preschool, they're allowed to. Preschool is yeah. private. Okay, but uh, she said that, and sitting on the parents' chair, I was like, oh my god, your heart must have been. Yeah, I was like, yes, I, I still haven't grasped that diagnosis. Like right now, I, I, I get it. Like I'm. I, I adore my child and I know how he is. Right. But like back then, like if if the teacher had like a little bit of empathy, mm-hmm. empathy mm-hmm. for that, that's the word for the parent. Because when we're not ready to no, receive, so hard. we're not ready to receive any feedback from our child because we're trying to cope with the diagnosis, so so a little of um, that will be empathy and compassion. I agree, but that also comes down to personality. Not everybody is empathetic or compassionate, and interestingly enough, oftentimes our neurodivergent friends are the ones that they might have empathy, but they don't know how to show it. They might have compassion, they don't know how to show it. Um, my husband, stone face. And when people, when I'm, you know, we're out and about and people meet us, I'm chatty. I'm, I'm the social one. <laughs> and he could just stare right through you. And his blank stare sometimes looks not the most inviting, but that's not actually how he's feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes he'll see something and I'll, oh my gosh, oh no, this is horrible, this is terrible. And he's, and then three, four, five, Hours, days later, he'll say, "Oh, that was just the worst. I was so upset. You were, you were. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't notice. What do you mean? Of course, I was upset. But Jacob, you didn't have a reaction. It was, that doesn't mean I didn't feel things. So it's one of those things where, yes, these teachers need empathy, compassion. Sometimes they do. Sometimes, and I'm not saying this was the situation with your situation. They get very." cold because they're scared also teachers don't like to give that news they in and in a preschool they know that oftentimes they are the first ones to break that news to a parent and then sometimes just personality and they just that's just the way that they are and that's not fun and i have no advice on how to handle it that but I I I think it's important to remember that everyone handles things differently and when you're in different situations including teachers the way you'll see them across the table might be different than if you run into them at dinner at Chili's they're in a different role they're wearing a different costume they're in a different headspace Um, but I also know being married to someone who's neurodivergent reactions are never what you expect Mm -hmm. ever I never know how he's going to react. Been with him for ten years. So something else. When does a parent look for an advocate? So that's a great question. Um, it depends on the parent. You have some parents that the minute I'm saying eighteen months, two years old, that their child is diagnosed, they're on the phone with me. And usually, then I'm going, "Hey, you don't need me right now." You are a great advocate for your child. Go get your therapies. Go get your evaluations. Go talk to these people. You have some parents who don't call me until it's really bad and they're already fighting with the school and their child is already very far behind and they they realize that their child hasn't been getting their services. They haven't been taken care of, um, and this is this is more for when you have a child who's neurodivergent, but but 
completely least restrictive environment and always has been in that general education setting. So maybe their grades always looked halfway decent. And when the, the children were babies, they were, and when I say babies, I mean elementary, they didn't speak up as much because they didn't even realize, oh, I didn't go with Mr. B for speech today. No biggie. I had more recess and they don't mention it to mom. And then they're now in seventh grade and the logs aren't, the math is not mathing. The logs aren't showing up. They realize that their child hasn't gotten extra time on state tests for the last three years, that maybe they got a level two when they could have been a level five had the playing field been level. And the parents call me going, my kid hasn't gotten this, 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 and this, and we want to sue. And I go, all right, hold on, pump the brakes. If you want to sue, I'm not your girl. I'm an advocate. I know the rules, I know the laws, I know how to bridge the gap between parent and school so that we all work together as a cohesive team. But if you're going to sue, you need an attorney. However, before you go and sue the school district that you are zoned for, that you want your child to stay in, maybe we can all take a step back, take a deep breath, and we go to work. And sometimes I get a call for a parent who, you know, it's just a routine IEP meeting. And they know that anything about their child, they're going to get emotional. Even if everything's wonderful, they know that they're just not in the headspace to hear good or bad about their kid and that they need a, a third party who's calm, who's not emotionally invested, that can take proper notes, make sure that everything looks right, and I'll see you again next year. So it, it really depends on the situation. Um, I think as there has been more of a spotlight on neurodivergency, there's been more of a spotlight now on people such as myself. When I first left the classroom and I went home to my mom and my dad and my husband and my in-laws, I said, I'm going to be an advocate. They were like, a what? I said, an advocate for kids with special needs. This is not a parent's job? No, but there's blah, blah, blah. You know, okay, fine. To this day, if you go to my website, which I really need to update, um, it's the picture is about 10 years old because I made this website. I put it together just so that it's called eseadvocate.com. But my picture is literally 10 years old. I, I, I would kill to look that youthful at this point. But with that said, um, it was enough that now all of a sudden it's gaining traction. I'm getting tagged on Facebook. I'm getting calls from people like you where, like, hey, isn't this what you do? I'm getting calls from friends who you know, we've been friends a long time. We, we didn't have kids when we, when we were, became friends. And when I started becoming an advocate, we didn't have children. And now they have kids that are neurodivergent. And I go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's what you do, isn't it? Like, <laughs> I'm glad it's now clicking. Yes, that's yeah. what I do. And I wind up helping them too. Um, so parents call advocates at different times for different needs. And there's no right or wrong. If you call me when the fire is blazing, I'm going to put the fire out. If you call me when your child is just diagnosed, I'm just going to give you an ear and calm you down. Um, and if you call me for a routine meeting saying, I know I get into these meetings and I just cry and I, don't, I can't control it, I'll bring you tissues, pat your back, and I'll deal with the school so that you can be as present as you possibly can. Um, and there's a lot of other gray area in there. But, you know, it's not always adversarial. Um, I work with a lot of schools. I have plenty of ESC contacts that are genuine friends of mine that we know when we're going to be in our, our roles and wear our hat as ESC coordinator and ESC advocate, and we're on different sides of the table, that at the end we're fighting for the same team. For the kid. For the kid. That's the team. And sometimes it gets heated. Sure. But we, we both know it's fueled by a love for that child, not for self-gain, not for ego, just to make this child's life easier, better. That's it. And then maybe we go get lunch after. We're like, okay, you know. I had a meeting the other day mm -hmm. where um, it's a local high school, and they had a 504 liaison last year who just didn't do their job, and she has since left 
And there's hundreds of kids out of compliance that haven't had a, a 504 meetings in almost two years. And before that meeting, she called me. She goes, Candace, I know. You know I wasn't the one on this. I know this is going to be bad. I love you. <laughs> Please remember this wasn't me. And also knock them dead. Because she knew her school was wrong. And I did just that. And then after that meeting, after the school day was over, because obviously she's not calling me while she's in the school building because she also doesn't, um, you know, principal is not in love with me. Can't imagine why. Uh, she <laughs> calls me, she goes, you were insane. I'm like, what, what did I do? I, I was just saying the facts. She goes, exactly. She goes, you just didn't come up for air. They didn't know what hit them. I was like, well, yeah. She was, that was amazing. She was, I recorded you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's not just like I'm going in to fight, but if I have to have guns a-blazing, I will. And oftentimes, it's the ESE coordinators that are saying to me, hey, got a problem here. Address it, because if I address it, I'm getting fired. Yeah. And something that is, um, for you, is that you're reasonable with your rate. Yeah. You're so reasonable Thank with you. your rate. And well, I'm trying. I really, I'm not trying to make this something that people can't attain help for your child should be attainable it shouldn't only be for the wealthy it shouldn't yeah. so um that's our partnership yes. what we have with minor for inclusion foundation so um if you cannot afford an advocate or you don't know how to communicate with the school we are here to help and you have you've helped so many families yeah been great yeah <laughs> it's been great working with you really so thank you so much and with you too thank you um so but basically we are based on donations yeah. so far uh so if you hear the podcast if you see the podcast go ahead and donate at manuforinclusion.org um or how do you spell that m-a-n-u for inclusion.org uh-huh um, it's Manu's first name, <laughs> nickname, M-A-N-U, F as in Frank, O as in Bork, R as a Rose, Inclusion, Inclusion uh, that org, yeah. So it's an organization. Yes, it's a nonprofit. We're here with the from the bottom of our hearts doing this, and I have been in your shoes. Yes. Yeah. So with this. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your oh, experience, for the thank time. Thank you for having me. This was very nice. Yeah. Thank you. So um, I hope to see you next time, and we will talk more about uh, the classrooms and laws and stuff. Yes, always. Uh, all right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. Thank you so much for joining today. And remember, if you have any questions or comments, please email me at v at mindfulinclusion.org. Have an awesome day and see you next time.